Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 this morning. You know, as I was contemplating this text this morning and all the truths that it contains, the temptation in this generation of believers is to be quick in preaching God's Word. Many believers today liken their choice of food, would rather have fast or quick food when it comes to the preaching of God's Word. Give it fast and quick. Few have been conditioned in this generation to patiently wait at the table of God's Word and feast upon the entire Word with patience, anticipation, and careful consideration. Fast food Christians make for imbalanced, unnourished, and superficial Christians who I believe lack in spiritual strength and maturity. So with that said, I beg your patience and endurance as we continue in this passage of Scripture, which for many people are very uncomfortable. But I make no apologies this morning for this passage of Scripture found in Luke chapter 16, nor will I ever seek to excuse or rationalize its divine truths to satisfy sinful man's contempt and disdain of its being part of God's divinely inspired words. For sinful man would vehemently reject the very idea that such a place as hell could ever exist, and that God who they say is a God of love and mercy, could ever condemn anyone to such a place of eternal punishment and torment. Yet, beloved, it is because sinful man does not know nor understand the great depth of his own sinfulness and depravity, nor the just punishment due for such sinfulness that he doesn't believe that such a place exists. For if he did if he knew and understood the depth of his depravity and the guilt that he has before God and the transgressions he's committed against this thrice holy God, if he truly understood that, he'd have to believe that such a place exists and that God would be justified in sending those who reject Christ to an eternity of torments and pains. But he doesn't grasp that. If he did, he too, like the thief on the cross, would cry, We are condemned justly, he said to his fellow thief on the cross. We are condemned justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. For in the gospel, dearly beloved, one cannot understand nor believe in the great mercy, love, and grace of God in Christ until it reveals one's own sinfulness and guilt before God. The law of God must condemn before the grace of God can be revealed. To attempt 
to convince sinful man of God's love and mercy in Christ while he sees not his own sinfulness and guilt before God would be in vain. For then his understanding of God's love would be distorted like it is today. That's why sinful man rejects to believe that such a place exists or that God would ever consider condemning anyone to such punishment and torments, not because he believes in God's love, but because in reality, and here it is, it's because he believes he does not deserve such punishment. That's why he don't believe that such a place exists. That's why he don't believe that he doesn't believe in God condemning someone there, because he believes that in himself he does not deserve such punishment. For, beloved, if he believed himself just and undeserving of such punishment for his sins, then there is no need for such a place of torment and wrath. If he believes himself to be just and undeserving of such punishment for his sins, then in his mind there is no need of such place of torment and wrath. That's why sinful man rejects this text in Luke chapter 16. Not because he believes in the love of God, but believes he doesn't deserve. When we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, dearly beloved, it's not to convince men of God's love and mercy. It's to show them their need of God's mercy and grace. Because of their sinfulness and guilt before God, they're transgressors before God. Only then shall a sinner understand and believe the mercy, grace, and love of God in Christ Jesus. But until he comes to that point, he's going to have a distorted view of God's love. Many today have watered down the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why we have so many people who live a life of sin and yet believe they're going to heaven. doesn't matter how they live. They're still going to heaven because God is love and I don't deserve such a place of punishment. But oh, let the sinner see his sinfulness and guilt before God. By the gospel of Jesus Christ, let him feel the weight and burden of his sins and transgressions against God, then and then only shall the love and mercy and grace of God in Christ Jesus be known and believed. Until then, you'll never believe in such a place or that God can condemn anyone to such punishment and torment. But our text proves otherwise. <clears throat> Look in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 22. Luke 16:22 and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom the rich man also died and was buried and in hell he lift up his eyes being in torments and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom one event happens to them both for beloved death is not only inevitable and inescapable but also predestined and ordained by God. Beloved, death is subservient to none but God who sovereignly summons it for each and every one of us in his divinely appointed time. 
For our days, declared Job in chapter 14, our days are by him determined, and the number of our months are with him, and he alone has appointed our bonds that we cannot pass. The rich man died and the beggar died. One event to them both. And though it often summons us unexpectedly, death. In many ways, beloved, let's close into this because there's so much truth in this. Though it often summons us unexpectedly, in many ways, those who are made much aware of its approaching by age or illness, I believe, fare far better than those who choose to ignore it or taken by it by surprise. And Thomas Fuller said it in words better than I ever could. And he said, and I quote about death, Lord, be pleased to shake my clay cottage before thou throwest it down. Make it totter a while before it doth tumble. Let me be summoned before I am surprised. End of quote. What is it like to die? Is a response I heard yesterday when I asked an old saint of God who's lying on his deathbed, what are your thoughts? What consumes your thoughts as you lie here? Alone on this bed, gazing out the window. His response is, what is it like to die? In over 40 years of preaching, and all the countless debates and controversies he must have had with other brethren and sisters, even sinners about the great doctrines of our holy Christian faith when it comes down to the last and when it comes down to the end. This man of God's question was, what is it like to die? And when I spoke to him about the tragedy of the student's from the college who had an accident last week and died, nine of them, I believe, his hands began to shake. And he looked at me, and I could tell in his eyes there was this question. Why are so many young so quickly taken out of life, and I lie here suffering and lingering before God takes me on? Oh, the questions that must fill our hearts and minds when death draws nigh. There's not very many people that will occupy themselves with that question, why they're living. But speak to those who by either age or illness have had a brush with death, and they will tell you it is a question they very much think about. And it is often on their minds. Yet while we're young and healthy, we go through this life without ever considering the question of death. And we ought to. We should. What is it like to die? It came to pass that the beggar died. The rich man also died and was buried. I want you to notice in our text that death was brief. It is brief. It's almost as brief, if not more brief, than life, which is a vapor. 
because I want you to take careful attention to how quickly the souls of men are ushered by death into eternity. How quickly. It says Lazarus died and was immediately carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and was buried and immediately in hell lifts up his eyes being in torment. Death was just a moment, a twinkling of an eye, a passing from life and time to eternity. It was quick. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for the believer. But death is something that's quick. It's just a passing. What an amazing and yet awe-inspiring truth. How swift is the beggar's rags, pain and poverty, exchanged for the comfort and joys of Abraham's bosom. He went from that to that in an instant through death. What an amazing thing that would be. Think about it as a Christian. We leave this troublesome life where sin and pain and agony and sorrow is abundant. And in a minute, in a twinkling of an eye, by death, we're passed into Abraham's bosom. What heights of joy and rejoicing will the Christian have? I'm amazed because of this entire text. Lazarus never says a word, not even in his present life, neither in Abraham's bosom. But oh, his silence speaks volumes. Just consider it, beloved. Consider our dear brother who is lying in the hospital, in the nursing home, who's feeling the sufferings of his flesh, how it's tottering, like Fuller said. It's weakening. It's corrupt. But in an instant, when death brings him into eternity, what heights of joy shall he experience to go from this world into the presence of Christ? Is it any wonder Paul said it's far better to depart and be with Christ? You see, this comes from thinking about what it is like to die. And how quickly the worldly riches and prosperity of the rich man vanish as in hell he lifts up his eyes being in torment. Just as much, just as equally as we shall rejoice with unspeakable joy in the presence of Christ, the rich man went from his wealth and his riches and his living sumptuously every day immediately into a pit of torments and hell and pain. Oh, his pain and agony, I believe, far excelled in some ways, not always, but I believe that it at least was the same amount as the joy Lazarus had in Abraham's bosom. Beloved rags or riches, poverty or prosperity, good things and evil things. All these things are but temporary in this present world if we would, but as God's children, ever keep that before our hearts and our minds. It's all temporary in this present world. Therefore, child of God, rejoice in whatsoever lot God has chosen for you because it's only temporary. We hear not Lazarus complaining about lying at the gate full of sores nor complaining that the crumbs were too less, nor complaining that the dogs were licking his sores. What a picture not only of Christ, but also of the believer. No matter what Lot chooses, God chooses for us in this life. 
it'll never be worse than those who go to hell. Flavel said something to that account when he said it's a, it's a comfort knowing that the greatest of believers going to suffer is in this world. That's the greatest suffering we're going to have. And it's temporary. How many Christians do you see or have you seen who come to brush themselves against death that are anxious to depart this world and be with Christ? Why are we so fearful? Why are we so troubled? That which waits us on the other side of death is much more extremely much more, exceeding much more glorious than what we have in this present life. Oh, to leave this spotted and corrupt clay to enter into the presence of God. Uh, yet we spend not enough time thinking about that. Our hearts are too weighted down by the things of the world. Paul said it best when he said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy. I love the wording. Are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed unto us. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. That's why I say, though Lazarus, we hear no word from Lazarus, I believe his silence speaks volumes. Yet for those who lay up treasure for themselves and are not rich toward God, who choose good things in this lifetime only, all these things, like the rich man, shall perish, and with them their eternal soul. For as, and listen to me, according to our text, and we'll see that, for as in heaven, the true believers are very conscious and aware of the joys and comforts of heaven. Now he, Lazarus, is comforted, Abraham says. In heaven, beloved, the true believer is very conscious and aware of the joys and comforts of heaven. So too, in hell, the unconverted is very much aware and conscious of his agonies and torments. And thou art tormented, Abraham said. He's comforted and thou art tormented. There's a consciousness, not only in heaven, Praise God for that, but the consciousness of those in hell. You're tormented. He lifted up his eyes and torments. Think about that for a moment. That as we shall enjoy the blessings of the presence of Christ in its fullness, they shall be tormented in the fullness of their agony and pains in hell and it took one quick move of death to bring both of them into that position one quick moment in time there's a time to be born and a time to die Ecclesiastes nothing in between about living you're born to die we're born with one foot in the grave And yet as Christians, we have a hard time facing that reality. But we shouldn't. 
What is it like to die? The Christian answers joyfully to be with Christ. And the sinner has no answer. Oh, he fears death because it's the finality in everything. I want you to notice, though, the beginnings of the rich man's torments in verse 23. His consciousness. Look in verse 23. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. I want you to know that this verse declares unto us how in hell his torments was enhanced by Abraham being afar off and him seeing Lazarus in his bosom. He's seen that. Beloved, as the true child of God shall see Christ as he is. Are you following me? First John. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And though we know not what's going to happen to us, it says, but we shall see him as he is. The beloved, the Christian, will see Christ as he is, though now in a glass darkly. But then the Bible says we'll see him face to face. What joy and happiness shall fill our souls. Yet in hell, the rich man sees as well. But it's not Christ as he is. It's not face to face. In hell the rich man sees, yet the object of his sight, the Bible says, is afar off. And these two words are very important. Often we overlook these words. It says clearly that he seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. It's important that we understand why the Holy Spirit of God allowed him to see such things and declare it unto us. See Abraham afar off. Afar off is a very unusual word, but very meaningful. Afar off means not only a great distance away, but listen to me, it also, and even more so, means estranged in affections and alienated. The rich man sees not only Abraham and Lazarus afar off, but he feels that he's estranged from their affections and alienated. To add to his torments, he also sees Lazarus, one who once lay at his gate, now comforted in the bosom of Abraham, to whom now he is alienated and estranged. This merely enhanced his torments. Not only the flames of hell, but I believe this was even a greater torment. To know and to be aware that he's estranged from Abraham. Estranged from God. Alienated from God. But then to see he who lay at his gate daily, resting, comforting in his bosom, this enhanced his torment. And I believe that God would have his torments enhanced even more Greater than that. For he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. As though he hoped to still have a part 
But Abraham said, Son, remember. Beloved, if we consider these words for just a few moments, I believe we would understand, since they're far off, how this enhanced the torments of the damned. You see, there is consciousness in hell, not only of the torments, but listen to me. I believe our passage teaches us that there's consciousness of what believers have in Christ that they don't have. We say when we get to heaven, we believe the scripture teaches that though we won't, we won't know everything about God, we'll know him as he is. We'll see things more clearly, more completely. We'll understand things more clearly and completely. Hell is no different. He'll understand. He'll be conscious of what we have and what he does not have. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but that doesn't make him repent. He's still a sinner in hell. Keep that in thought. And like I said, I'm getting ahead of myself because there's no repentance in hell. There's none. They're not wishing they would have been saved. They're not wishing they would have converted and turned to Christ. No, in hell they hate God perfectly, with a perfect hatred. They hate him. They despise him. And I believe we see that in the rich man's attitude and in his questions. He hates and despises. That's a sinner. And I'll show you that in a few minutes in Romans chapter 3. The description of a sinner, you think that changes in hell? He seeketh not God. God's not at all in his thoughts. There's poison and asp in his tongue. And his... No, he's the same in hell, except in hell it is to the very extreme. His hatred and enmity toward God is extreme. He has no desire for him. Again, I'm getting ahead of myself. You notice he doesn't ask Abraham for deliverance. He doesn't want it. He's a selfish sinner. Give me a drop of water and comfort me. He has no desire to be delivered. In hell, you'll hate and despise God with every part of your being, and that for eternity, and it will cause you to gnash your teeth, Matthew chapter 24 says. Now these words would greatly increase his torments that though he would seek comfort in Abraham being his father, yet he was afar off. Didn't do him any good. And by Abraham's response calling him son and to remember he might realize the mercy and grace and goodness of God that he despised and yet that didn't help him. That enhanced his terror, enhanced his torment, his anger and hatred for God. Well, if you can't do that, then send him my brethren. He didn't care about his brethren. You remember the passage in Matthew 7, many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful things, works. Sounds like rich man calling him Abraham. Lord, Lord, in your name, in your name, in your name, Abraham, have mercy on me. Lord, we've done all these things in your name, in your name. But the Lord says, then will I profess unto them I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. If they did that in this lifetime, what do you think they'll do in hell? The rich man's the example. Lord, Lord, Abraham, Abraham. He seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Yet what amazes me, 
and it shouldn't because in hell they're just as much and even more a sinner than they were in heaven. Why do we think that hell is going to cause someone to change their mind or convert them? There's no conversion in hell. There's no mercy. He asked for mercy in a place that will receive no mercy. He wanted it for himself. That's all he wanted. Have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he dip his finger in water and comfort me. It's all about him. The sinner's all about him. He's not looking for any kind of repentance or remorse. Yet never does he request to be delivered from his torments or join Lazarus. Only that Lazarus might dip his finger in water to cool his tongue. He doesn't even seek to be delivered completely from hell. He just seeks for a moment of comfort. One fleeting, quick moment. Could he truly imagine that one drop would soothe him for a long time? He doesn't even desire to get out of hell. He doesn't desire to be in Abraham's bosom. He doesn't desire or covet what Lazarus has. He hates it. For wouldn't you think that he'd say, hey, deliver me from this place. Get me out of here. He doesn't. Did he know that it was useless and in vain to seek deliverance from his torments? I believe so. As in heaven, we'll have a perfect knowledge. I believe in hell, they have it too. I believe that's why he didn't ask for it. He was hoping for just a little bit, a tiny bit of comfort. He didn't ask because he knew it was helpless. It was vain. And he didn't want it. He said, I can't believe somebody would not want to be delivered from that. I'm telling you, look at Scripture. Okay, we'll look at that in a few minutes. But those that go into hell, the gnashing of teeth, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth is not because of fear or terror. It's hatred. When somebody gets mad, what do they do? And that's what the sinner does. I hate you, God, for putting me here. I hate you and everything that you are. You say, I don't feel that way now. Wait till you get in hell. It's going to enhance that hatred that you have because you see, whether you realize it or not, if you're unconverted, you're at enmity with God. You're at enmity with God. At this very moment, you're at enmity with God. Outside of Christ, you're lost and undone and without God. And you might not sense or feel that way now because you're alive and you think, well, I live in a Christian home, I'm going to church, that may be fine. But I guarantee you, if God was to take your soul today, you would say the same thing the rich man said. I hate everything about God and everything that He is. Like the sinner he was in life, so in death and eternity. What's Romans say about the sinner? He's one who understandeth not, that seeketh not God, that unprofitable. Throat is, his throat is an open sepulcher, his tongue's deceitful. Poison of asp is under his lips, mouth full of cursing and bitterness. Why do you think that in hell it's going to change, that the sinner's going to be converted because of the torments? Torments of hell do not produce conversion. I hope we're understanding of that of believers. Torments of hell do not convert. The only thing that converts is the gospel, and that's only why we're living and breathing in this life. There's no gospel in hell. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. So he's a sinner in hell like he was in heaven. 
The old Puritan preacher once said, if a sinner could, he'd climb up into heaven and kill God. There's no repentance in hell. There's no remorse for sins. There the depth of man's sinfulness and enmity for God is so intense and fierce, even to the weeping and gnashing of the teeth. Christ declared in Matthew 22, there shall be weeping and gnashing of the teeth. Why? Utter hatred for God. God took everything away from this rich man that he loved, his pleasures, living sumptuously every day, his riches, his food, his feast. God took everything he loved away, and now he despises and hates God for it. In the verse 25, but Abraham said, son, remember. It's amazing how there's remembrance in hell. You know, in heaven, you know, it says the second time Christ wipes our tears away. It said, we'll forget the things, the former things. We'll forget the former things. In hell, there's no forgetting. In hell, they remember all the time. They're going to remember every message they heard. They're going to remember every time God's goodness was leading towards them to repent. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repent. They'll remember every time. He'll remember every day that Lazarus laid his gate. He's going to remember those things, and it's not going to lead him to repentance. It's going to enhance and entice his anger towards God. Remember. Remember that thou in the, thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus the evil things. But now he is comforted and now are tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. Abraham enhances his anger even more. There's a great gulf. Beside all that, there's a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father. You notice, You notice how... And I, I think the wording is important. You notice how in the King James, in verse 24, when he said, Father, they're using a large one, and here they're using a small one. It's insignificant. Now, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abram said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father, Abraham. But if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. Notice he used the word repent. You think he understood what repentance meant? Not likely. He didn't even repent of why he was there. So why would why would he have an understanding about his brothers having repentance? It's all a rouge. It's fake. It's hatred. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. In other words, he said, It doesn't matter if one rose from the dead. It wouldn't help unless they hear Moses and the prophet. What's that? Unless they understand, unless they obey, unless they hear the word of God. This is the key. Unless they hear the word of God. See this book right here we preach out of and we're all reading out of and your father and mother read to you every day. That's the book of life. preaching of the gospel. It's life. It lays at the gate of your heart every day.
Today is the day of salvation. God doesn't give us tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. How can we as believers take comfort from all this? Because I haven't mentioned much about Lazarus. Well, I haven't mentioned much about Lazarus because his silence, like I said, speaks volumes. We must take much comfort from Lazarus. And like what Calvin said about this passage of Scripture, and again I quote, we see that in a body which was loathsome and full of rottenness, there was lodged a soul unspeakably precious, which is carried by angels to a blessed life. It was no loss to him that he was forsaken, despised, and destitute of every human comfort when heavenly spirits condescend to accompany him on his removal from the prison of the flesh. End of quote. Couldn't have said it better myself. It doesn't matter what Lot gives us, God gives us in this life. Whether it be poverty or riches, sickness or health, Afflictions or pleasures. Everything in this life, dearly beloved, Lazarus shows us is temporary. And we can surely endure because Christ endured infinitely more for us. Shall we not endure a few moments of time suffering in this life for Him? It's nothing. And when we die, we'll enter into the arms of Christ I pray no one here this morning will leave without giving serious consideration of their eternal soul and that you would take a lesson not only from the rich man if you're lost, but we as Christians from Lazarus. Let me close with an old hymn which deals with this passage of Scripture. Listen closely. In what confusion earth appears God's dearest children bathed in tears, Lazarus. While they who heaven itself deride, riot in luxury and pride. That's confusion on earth. But patient let my soul attend, and ere I censure view the end. That end how different who can tell the wide extremes of heaven and hell. See the red flames round him twine, who did in gold and purple shine. Nor can his tongue one drop obtain to allay the scorching of his pain. While round the saints so poor below, full rivers of salvation flow. On Abram's breast he leans his head and banquets on celestial bread. Jesus, my Savior, let me share the meanest of thy servants' fare. He was a beggar. May I at last approach to taste the blessings of thy marriage feast. May God be merciful to us all. What is it, what is it like to die? We say as Christians, Christ. What do you say? And I pray you die not without Christ. Sometimes I believe we don't fathom the seriousness or consequences 
of the preaching of God's Word. Like I said when I was praying, I believe that though God works every day of our lives, He's working always every second of the day. I believe on Sundays on His appointed day when He calls forth His men to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, when He gathers His people together and the Word of God is opened and preached, God does eternal things, great and glorious things. We should be humbled and struck in, in awe for that. Do you know the wording of Paul to preach the unspeakable riches, unsearchable riches of Christ? Unsearchable riches in Christ. Do you know the depths of sin and sadness that Christ has pulled us out of as His children? Do you know the great debt that He paid on Calvary to save us from eternal torments in hell and from sin and reconcile us to God? Do you realize the measurement, the fathom of that? That not only being delivered from hell and sin's punishment, but being delivered into the presence and fellowship of the Almighty God. Oh, Lord, may you come quickly. Let us pray. Father, I pray that, Lord, you'd bless the preaching of thy word to our hearts. I pray that you'd be with those, even at this very moment, whose hearts are trembling, whose conscience is stirred, who's troubled. Lord, I pray that you'd give them no peace. Give them no peace till they hear the words of Christ. I pray that you'd show them their guilt and shame before God. And Lord, as you do that, I pray that, Lord, they'd see the rich mercy and grace of God in Christ Jesus and cry out like the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Dear God, I pray that you would do a work of grace in our midst. And Lord, as for the believer, let us, Lord, learn from Lazarus. Lord, though we might suffer much in this world and we're not suffering anything near what Christ did, Lord, these few moments of suffering, these few moments of affliction could never be compared to what our Lord went through on Calvary for our sake. Lord, gladly will we share in your suffering. We look forward to the day when we shall see thee face to face. We shall know you as you are, dear God, until that day. Help us to ever be asking ourselves the question, what is it like to die but to be with Christ? Father, bless now we pray. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.